Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. We may recall we talked about this, uh, I think it was a few months ago, that the Alberta government was uh, looking at, at uh, to some extent, emulating the approach of B.C. when it comes to impaired driving, an administrative approach to dealing with impaired driving, what some have described as almost decriminalization, uh, that the Alberta government was considering that and, and that maybe there were reasons why they would perhaps want to reconsider. Well, it looks as though they are indeed moving ahead with this approach. The Provincial Administrative Penalties Act been tabled this week, uh, and if passed, it would take a lot of this out of the courts, that it would add some hefty fines and penalties for first-time impaired drivers, but would not have them face a criminal charge. Now, the justice minister says this could uh, free up officers to do less paperwork, it could reduce the backlog in court. But what are the other issues that this uh, approach entails? Now, joining us uh, to talk more about uh, some of these questions very pleased to welcome back to the program here this afternoon, Greg Dunn, who's a lawyer with Dunn & Associates here in Calgary. Greg, thanks so much for making some time for us here. Welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks for having me again, Rob. All right. Well, yeah, I mean, you were telling us a few months ago that this was coming, so I guess you, you probably weren't surprised to see this, were you? Well, I was a little surprised it came so quickly, given uh, the, the myriad of other issues that we have on our table at the moment. Mm-hmm. But, but uh, ultimately, no, I think uh, this is the way the, the, the current government was, the trajectory of the current government was going, at least from the information that I had. So I'm not surprised. I'm disappointed. I'm concerned. But we're not surprised. So was it basically what you were expecting then? Well, I think it's uh, along the lines of uh, of what we expected. Essentially, Alberta's taken a copycat approach to the BC model, partly because the BC model has been litigated. So uh, I think they they have the belief that they got some cover in a constitutional sense that uh, similar legislation has already made its way up to the Supreme Court of Canada. So it's the safe route. So it's more or less what we've what we've kind of expected. All right, so under this bill, uh, first-time impaired drivers would be fined $1,000, have their cars impounded for a month, not be allowed to drive for at least three months, and would also have an ignition interlock installed in their vehicle for a year. Now, in terms of how and when that penalty is applied here, because that's not upon conviction then, right? We're not talking about someone being charged, being convicted, and facing those penalties. So how how does this work then? Well, yeah, I mean, and and I think you've hit the first issue right right on the head is is that uh, all of these penalties are applied uh, essentially at the side of the road and what this particular system brings in is a type of roadside justice and uh, this is i mean this is our primary uh, primarily uh, concern with respect to the new legislation and what we're concerned with is really an erosion of civil liberties in Alberta and and a movement towards towards a police state. So let me, let me just give your listeners a bit of background. Um, ordinarily, 
in a criminal prosecution for an impaired driving, everybody who's charged has what's or is entitled to what we call the presumption of innocence, which we refer to in the criminal sphere as the golden thread of criminal law. So, you know, basically means that you're innocent of the charge until a judge finds you guilty, and you don't have a penalty until you're proven guilty. Now, under this proposed traffic ticket system, it's inversed and it's reversed. So it's the police officer who's determining if you're guilty of the side of the road. It's the police officer who's going to determine if you're going to get a ticket. It's the police officer who's going to determine if your vehicle is going to be seized. It's the police officer who's going to determine if your license is going to be suspended. This is all doled out at the side of the road. And if you don't agree with it, then you need to go to court and file an appeal and prove that you're innocent. And the appeal process that they set out, I think one of my um, colleagues referred to it as toothless. It's, it's a joke. Um, you file an appeal within seven days. You appear in some kind of adjudicator who won't be a judge and likely won't even be a lawyer. And it's going to be up to you to prove that you didn't commit the offense. And by the way, um, under a criminal prosecution, it's no longer raising a reasonable doubt like it is in criminal cases. You need to prove on what's called a balance of probabilities, which is over 50%, that you're not guilty. So, uh, Rob, this is what they do in totalitarian states. This is not what they do in democratic states. And so the combination of, of, of this reversal of what we call the presumption of innocence creates a situation in which most people are not going to be in a position or not have the inclination to fight the charges. But the more important thing, I think the thing that we're really concerned about as defense lawyers is this complete loss of judicial oversight over the, over the conduct of the police. And, and this is something that is going to be an unforeseen consequence of moving this from a criminal charge to what we call a traffic ticket or an administrative charge. So, so if I could give you just your listeners a bit of background. Right now, under the criminal law, for the last 18 months, we've had what's called the mandatory alcohol screening provisions. Right. And, that, and that means, and you've heard of those, and that means police officers can stop anybody to do a random sobriety check with, on a roadside screening test. Now, it's been around for about 18 months. hasn't been fully tested in the courts, but, you know, I'm sure that's going to come. But the bottom line is that they can stop you for whatever reason to put you on uh, a screening test. And I've had a lot of clients who've come in. Police officers pulled them over and they said, what did I do wrong? Police officer said, you didn't have to do anything wrong. We don't have to have a reason to pull you over. We're pulling you over, blow. And so what we have is we have this very broad, powerful power bestowed upon the police under the criminal code. And ordinarily, because impaired driving is, or at least was here in Alberta, a criminal offense, the broad power is tempered by the fact that it's subject to criminal law restriction and remedies. So when I'm talking about that is I'm talking about the scrutiny of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And the Charter of Rights and Freedoms apply to criminal law, and they protect us from abuses such as unlawful stops and unlawful detentions and unlawful search and seizures. But under a traffic ticket system, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms no longer applies. So essentially... What you're, what you're dealt with, and, the, and I call this the perfect storm. What you're dealt with, what you're left with, is you're left with a situation which police have carte blanche powers to stop motorists, and there's absolutely no remedies for motorists that are stopped for the wrong reasons. 
So let's say, and let's use the issue of the moment. Let's say, for whatever reason, that the police say they stopped you because of a mandatory alcohol screening uh, reason that they were going to put you on the test, and it was random. But I knew it wasn't random. I knew it was because you were black. Mm-hmm. As a defense lawyer, I could argue the stop was illegal and contrary to the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and I could ask for a remedy. I could ask the evidence be thrown out. I could ask the case be stayed. I could ask for cause. Under administrative system, I have access to none of that to absolutely none of that. So what you have is you have the power of criminal law to stop people, and you have absolutely no judicial oversight. And so really what we're concerned about is not only individual cases of you and me and, and, and you know individuals that may be stopped for no reason, but it creates a systemic system by which it can lead, potentially lead, and I'm not going to say it's going to lead for sure, but it will potentially lead to police abuses such as racial profiling, um, harassment of individuals, random stops without any reasons. And ultimately, it's going to lead to an erosion of liberty and privacy in this province. So what do you think they're doing? Is is this just about trying to save money, trying to alleviate the burden on on the legal system? Or what what do you make of the motivation here? Well, you know, they they came out with with some statistics and they said, well, it's it's going to reduce impaired driving, and it's going, to, it's going to increase public safety. First off, I don't believe those statistics, and I don't believe, at least if I, and I not only don't believe the statistics, but I don't believe the statistics stand for what they're saying that they're standing for. I don't think it's going to reduce impaired driving. Uh, I don't believe anyone believes that a traffic ticket as opposed to a criminal charge, are going to keep roads safer. So let me let me give you two reasons why these statistics on public safety are somewhat suspect. The first reason is this: the statistics that they're relying upon that are that are released by the BC Department of Justice um, are their statistics. And since they went from a criminal model to a traffic ticket model, they stopped releasing the raw data underpinning their statistical reports. So their statistics that you know, uh, Justice Schweitzer is, has been quoting are unable to be verified because they're no longer releasing the, the, uh, the underlying data. So that's red flag number one for me. Secondly, the statistics are, are misleading because they're not being provided in context. And I'll just give you one example. Alcohol-related fatality numbers. British Columbia, the very first year that they went from a criminal model to this traffic ticket model in 2010-2011, they said they had a 40% reduction in alcohol-related fatalities. What they didn't tell everyone and what they didn't tell you and what they're not telling you is that Alberta had a 32.7 reduction over that same time period, as did most other provinces. Not only did impaired driving fatalities go down in Alberta, in, in British Columbia, they went down in similar numbers across the country. And we don't know exactly why. It, some of it may be due to a generational shift of younger drivers moving from alcohol to drugs. Um, but I think largely it was due to, to advances made in automotive safety, like side airbags, which made a huge effect in survivability rates. But we, what we do know, it's not the ridiculous notion of reducing impaired driving, uh, that reducing impaired driving from a criminal charge to a traffic ticket stopped people from driving drunk. What this is about, it's about cost savings. And that is the one fact that the government's been honest with you about, is that it is saving costs because 
running trials are expensive. Um, as I said before, judges are expensive, prosecutors are expensive, and defense lawyers are especially expensive. And so they are going to be saving a lot of money in terms of trial time. But my, my question to that is at what cost? At what cost to public safety and at what cost to the civil liberties of, of the people of this province? Some big questions. Much more at dunnandassociates.ca. Greg, thanks so much for checking in with us here today. We'll keep a close eye on things, and perhaps we'll uh, check in again down the road. But appreciate your insight on this. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me. All the best. Uh, that is Greg Dunn. He's a, a defense lawyer with dunnandassociates.ca. Uh, so his concerns, and you know, reiterating a lot of what he told us a few months ago, but now that this is actually going to happen, I, I think it becomes much more relevant. So that, that's what decriminalization means. I think people think decriminalization it means like we're, we're taking a softer approach on impaired driving. I don't know that you would characterize it this way, but does it seem like a less fair approach to, to go about it this way? Well, the U.S. president doing a bit of a victory lap today regarding jobless numbers, um, less so from the prime minister, but we, we do see uh, similar numbers in, in both countries in terms of jobs being added to the economy. I mean, both countries are still at official unemployment levels of over 13%. Nothing to get too excited about. I think about 2.5 million jobs created in the U.S., uh, 289,000 here in Canada. So that's, that's encouraging. I mean, we've still got a long ways to go in terms of an economic recovery. We probably should be careful about getting too ahead of ourselves uh, because who knows what next week, next month, next year will bring. But, you know, we'll take good news where we can get it. So what do we make of all of this? Have, have we bottomed out? Is the economy starting to get back on track? Are we in the midst of a V-shaped recovery? Probably not. But let's get some thoughts here from uh, Trevor Toome, Associate Professor of Economics, University of Calgary, Research Fellow, School of Public Policy. Trevor, thanks so much for making some time for us here. Welcome to the program. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Now, I saw a tweet from you, and you said you weren't terribly surprised by this. And I guess if we look at the fact that you know, uh, economies are, are reopening, businesses are reopening. I mean, maybe we should expect some some recovery. So what, what did you make of these numbers, first of all? Yeah, so I didn't think it was all too surprising because the survey that StatCan put out into the field to learn about labor market activity and employment situations of Canadians was out there at the same time that different provinces, Alberta, for example, but also Quebec, more importantly, were beginning to relax some of the public health restrictions, allowing businesses to reopen and importantly, uh, allowing for construction activity to resume and certain retail activity as well. So that's uh, really where we saw these gains. Almost all the gains in May are really due to just four sectors alone, retail, food service, construction uh, and manufacturing. Uh, and a lot of it concentrated in Quebec, then, it would appear. That's right. Yeah, Quebec dominates uh, the country in terms of the employment gain. About 80% of the national gain is found in Quebec, and a lot of that, in particular, found in Montreal. Um, and that's it just because, of the, I guess, the timing of reopening, if you will, has been different in different places. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, in Alberta, then, maybe it's going to be less dramatic because a lot of our economy, you know, the construction as an example, mm -hmm. it, 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 was, it was open all along. Right. So we're not reopening big sectors of our economy like Quebec has been. Well, the, the bigger sectors that contracted the most are, of course, still retail, accommodation and food services. And those are also sectors that in Alberta we began reopening just around the time where the labor force survey was out. 
um, in Edmonton, a little later in Calgary, as we know. So we're likely to see a bigger increase here next month when we get the data for June. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, we, we had uh, two months of the worst jobless numbers, the worst employment mm-hmm. losses ever. Now yep. we get, this was technically, I guess, May was the biggest gain ever there. Yep, yep. This was the largest <laughs> monthly increase in employment in recorded history, about triple the previous record. Um, but, I mean, it just shows how deep we declined in March yeah. and April. We recovered only about one in 10 of the employment losses that we saw in those two prior months. So there's still a lot left to go. And I agree with your preamble that it's not likely to be a V-shaped re- uh, recovery, but a big chunk of what was lost will probably be recovered. But the big open question is how much of the displaced employment and businesses will return and how much is going to have, uh, I guess, longer-term challenges. Right. And I mean, it's it's interesting because not only do we have the biggest job gain in recorded history, we're sitting at the highest unemployment rate in yep. history. So that, that yep. you could have both of those things in May shows you just how, how topsy-turvy this whole thing is. Yeah. And to make it even more topsy-turvy, the unemployment rate itself is perhaps not even all that relevant a measure to look at. What we saw mm-hmm. in uh, May is that, yeah, the unemployment rate rose. And now in Alberta, we're at 15 and a half percent. But The unemployment rate rose primarily because a lot more people started looking for work and so then began to be counted as unemployed, whereas previously they were not considered in the labor force, even though really they were. It's just a technicality that they're not being counted. So a broader measure of unemployment um, shows that about one quarter of the overall labor force is right now unemployed, either technically employed but not actually working any hours, or not employed and not looking, but they otherwise would be looking and they want a job. They're just, this is a tough time to be looking. Mm-hmm. Well, I think part of what people are reading into this then maybe is, obviously, we still got a ways to go, but maybe mm-hmm. this represents, you know, that we've kind of turned the corner or that we've bottomed out. I mean, should we be cautious about making those kinds of assumptions at this point? Yeah, I think we we do need to be cautious for two reasons. First, how much of the reopening can take place and how far down that line or how far down that road we, we go does depend on whether or not we can maintain control and, and properly manage COVID-19. If cases start to rise dramatically again, then you can expect that we would have to lock down for a second time. So that'll be a really delicate balancing act for governments as they do engage in this phased and cautious and careful reopening because the economic recovery is contingent on maintaining control over COVID-19. But then a second reason why we should be cautious is there is still a lot of uncertainty around what fraction of the displaced activity is permanent. Imagine we recover 80% of what was lost. We would still be 300,000 Canadians short of the employment level that we were at in February. So recovering even a large majority of what was lost would still represent a very um, difficult time and a fairly deep recession. When you think about industries, it's still got a ways to go. I mean, obviously here in Alberta, it's still going to be a long haul for oil and gas. You think about mm-hmm. the airline industry, hotels, um, you know, the entertainment industry, right? Mm-hmm. There's some big sectors of the economy that, that they've got a long road ahead of them. 
Absolutely. And I also would layer into that in particular for Alberta here as we go into the summer tourism, uh, just international travel being basically zero right now. Uh, When the U.S. when does the U.S. border reopen? When do people feel comfortable even um, taking trips and visiting Banff and Jasper? So I think that the tourism sector in particular is going to have some some longer term challenges. And that's a sector where most of the activity is actually smaller businesses. So it's not dominated by a couple big players. You know, some airlines is one thing, but WestJet and Air Canada will be able to figure something out. But a lot of smaller businesses and tourism, um, how they get through it is going to be a, a really difficult challenge. You know, it's interesting, too. I mean, we've talked before about, you know, gender disparities when it comes to unemployment. And, I mean, there's been a story in Alberta uh, going into this whole situation about young men and and unemployment. It's interesting to see, though, you know, the the gender difference this time is that women seem to be harder hit than than men here. So they, they definitely were initially. In March, the sectors that contracted were female-dominated for the most part, retail, food services, accommodation. But then in April, what we saw is the contraction was read, uh, sorry, led by more male-dominated activities such as construction and manufacturing. Uh, I think there will be a longer-term challenge, though, for sectors like retail and food services than construction. So in that sense, it might be that, yeah, women in the Canadian labour market are going to have a more difficult recovery and maybe a more gradual and slower one than men. And that makes it very different from most other recessions that we have experience with. Most of the time, it's goods-producing sectors that lead uh, and are the source of the contraction. Here, it's service-producing sectors, and that's that's very different. And it'll be a, a policy challenge for government, too, because the kind of classic stimulus measures may not be as effective or potentially even appropriate at this time. Uh, so you, you mentioned earlier, you know, what, what the likely actual unemployment rate is, you know, the practical mm-hmm. measurement versus what, what this represents. And I, I wonder then if we're going to see that, that kind of up and down in the coming months that where, where there's signs of improvement, more people into the job market. So you might see a certain number of jobs created, but the unemployment rate goes up because more yeah. people are looking for work. And, and perhaps even too, as, as various um, benefit programs get get winded down, then that might mean even more people uh, re-entering the workforce. Yeah, I, I sort of anticipate that because uh, most of the slack in the labor market is driven by individuals who are not counted as unemployed in the, in, in the typical data. Um, so the number with the zero hours, there's still well over a million Canadians now who are working zero hours. They're not working but they are still formally employed um, by their employer. There were never, never a layoff. And so they're not, they're not counted in the statistics in the usual sense. Uh, StatsCan has also recognized this and has started to release um, even some more detail today around a measure that they're calling the underutilization rate to try and get a better picture of slack in the labor market. So I think people are trying different ways to get a, let's say, a true picture of the of the slack and that'll really be the big story for the next couple of months and you're right i think they could go in opposite directions where a month where we see gains like in may may also be a month where we see notable increases in employment unemployment rates all right we'll leave it there for now i always appreciate the insight trevor thanks for making some time for us here my pleasure thank you Take care. Trevor Toome, uh, Associate Professor Economics, University of Calgary Research Fellow with the School of Public Policy. So, yeah, I mean, it it, it just underscores how, how 
unprecedented, if I can use that uh, overused word, this whole situation is, that you see a month where we post the highest unemployment rate recorded and the highest job growth, the biggest job growth ever recorded. That happened in the same month, uh, which really drives on the point that, wow, this, this, is, this is something. So again, maybe some of that's to be expected. You're going to see people going back to work. You're going to see companies reopen. You're going to see companies rehiring. And at the same time, people take those cues. Okay, well, now I'm, I'm now officially looking for a job again. So jobs get created. More people start looking for jobs. Unemployment rate goes up. And so you might see that dichotomy, you know, in, in the weeks and months ahead. All right, so further to the conversation we we're having earlier about the uh, jobless numbers and, and the state of the economy, right? And, and maybe it's possible now we're starting to turn a corner. Maybe things will, will get back on track or we're in the midst of some recovery. And uh, I guess time will tell. There's the question, though, of what kind of a policy response now going forward do we need to encourage that recovery or sustain that recovery? There's been a lot of talk about stimulus, which is uh, an easy go-to for governments, and we've, we've seen it in the past. Certainly we saw it you know, in the recession of 2008, 2009. Does it make sense here? Even here in Alberta, the Premier has talked a lot about stimulus, that we're going to accelerate various infrastructure projects, the shovel-ready projects. Uh, we're going to put that money in now, and hopefully that'll stimulate some economic growth. But given the, the situation we're dealing with and the public health crisis tying so closely into the economic crisis, it doesn't make sense to approach it that way. There's an interesting piece uh, up today at the, uh, from the C.D. Howe Institute, cdhowe.org, making the case that maybe it's not stimulus so much uh, that the economy needs right now, uh, but more of almost like a, a rehab approach, a rehabilitation approach. Well, joining us to talk more about it is uh, the author of this piece, Jennifer Robson, an associate professor of political management, Carleton University, more at cdhow.org. Professor Robson, uh, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, let's talk about the concept of, of rehabilitation in an economic sense. I think people are familiar enough with, with the term stimulus to know what we're, we're getting at. But what do you mean when you talk about rehabilitation? Yeah, so I guess what I'm talking about there is it's um, it's a different metaphor, right, than we're maybe used yeah. to talking about in economic terms, right? You know, I, I think at the top of this item, you were you were talking about the emphasis, right, on sort of shovel-ready, big infrastructure spends. Like, we're kind of familiar with what all of that looks like. But if you think about kind of a rehabilitation metaphor instead, it's often um, a little slower, a little more steady, Right. It's not kind of a big high test injection of, of sudden, uh, you know, uh, economic stimulus. It's more an acceptation, I guess, really. It's, you know, kind of a different frame of saying, look, you know, even though today's job numbers, for example, showed us that there has been a slight uptick, which is welcome news. There are millions of Canadians who are still out of work or who are on zero hours. And the recovery has been really uneven and it's going to be slow. Right. Um, and notwithstanding all of this, we still have a pandemic on our hands. And, you know, um, it's going to be many months before the pandemic is truly over in the sense of having access to a vaccine. So it's more thinking about that issue of how do we provide ongoing support that is productive, right, that, that actually treats um, the, the symptoms that we're all that the economy is experiencing um, and is also going to be resilient because if we end up with another second wave, right, if we have to shut things down again, we want to be preparing now to put ourselves in the best possible situation. 
Yeah, and it's interesting then because you know we're if we're going to be investing in all these infrastructure projects, that doesn't really protect against the impact of a potential second wave, then does it? No, it really doesn't. And um, you know, the, a couple of weeks ago, I think it was um, the BC Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry, said um, there has never been a global health pandemic that has not had a second wave, and that's been really you know weighing on me. I know that people are getting. Um, interested and excited, <laughs> restrictions are lifting, but I think we got to remember that this is not necessarily a one-way street, right? Um, and even as restrictions are lifted, um, there is a non-zero possibility we might have to reimpose some because of health rules. There's also that issue that it's not 100% clear that demand is going to come back right away, right? Just because the restaurants can open, will people go and dine out? Just because you know, travel is permitted. Will people actually take vacations again? We're going to have to wait and see. And I think it's possible we need to accept the fact demand's going to be soft for a while. Well, I mean, is there a way to, to encourage demand? I, I guess part of it is, I mean, having success on the, the public health side so people feel comfortable uh, venturing yeah. out again and going to public places and, and spending money. But does that mean then supporting Canadians more directly or, or how do we address the demand side? Right. So, um, you know, the piece that I wrote for CD House that was published today kind of thinks more about what do we do in the next couple of months, right? We're in a transition period right now where we're not, I mean, there's just a huge amount of uncertainty, I think, that we're all coping with. And so my focus would be on um, if we're going to do infrastructure spend, let's put it into those pieces of infrastructure in our communities that we suddenly realize we really missed, right? So, if we're hoping to be able to send kids back to school in September, let's spend money on the schools right now to make that more feasible. Um, if we want daycares to be able to reopen, let's spend money right now on childcare so that more locations can open with lower density for kids. You know, the job numbers today reminded us that the recovery, you know, however however small that little uptick, um, it's been a lot faster for men than for women. So we can't lose sight of that. Um, the other thing, too, to remember is that, um, you know, there are still millions, like I said before, there are millions of Canadians who are still out of work. In normal times, our employment insurance system um, is available not to every unemployed person, unfortunately, like we've got gaps in coverage. But it does both the job of providing some basic, you know, some access to income replacement, as well as access to services to help with employability, right? Like job search. And for some people, the right move is to go into self-employment. They need coaching and development on that. So we need to be thinking about um, how do we set up those other forms of service delivery, recognizing that it's not like when CERB ends that EI is suddenly going to have healed itself of all of the major challenges that it had before COVID, right? And we're going to have massive demand, I think, for those um, those other services in addition to the income support. I think people, I get it, people want to get back to work, right? They do. Yeah. And so governments need to find multiple ways of supporting them in that. Right. And, and because it, it is going to be something we're going to have to deal with fairly soon that, you know, these, these benefit programs that were put into place were meant to be temporary, were meant to be a bridge, and, and we're kind of getting to, to the end of that bridge, aren't we? Well, we're starting to get there. You know, the um, I think we're now, what, into the, the almost at the start of the fourth and final period for the Canada Emergency Response Benefit. So 
people who've been taking consistent benefits are going to start to exhaust them at the beginning of July. That feels soon for me personally. Um, that said, when I look at the data, um, it, it looks to me like that'll be, you know, an important but still a minority share of CERB claimants so far. So we should be starting to plan now because that number of people who are going to be exhausting CERB, it's only going to grow, right, over the coming months. The, the you know, the, the May employment numbers, Yes, there's a bit of good news in there, but we have such a long road to go. So we need to be thinking now about what do we do in the next couple of months to help all of those unemployed people. Some important points. Uh, Much more is mentioned, cdhow.org. Jennifer Robson, thank you so much for joining us here today. appreciate this. Thank you. All right, take care. Uh, Jennifer Robson uh, with Carleton University. An associate professor of political management uh, and the author of this piece uh, for the C.D. Howe Institute, cdhow.org, that this is a different kind of situation, right? That even maybe it made sense a decade ago or 2008, 2009, let's throw a bunch of money at big infrastructure projects, the shovel-ready stuff and, and all of that talk, and, and maybe there's a place for some of that, right? I mean, it's, it's something. If, if you're going to build a school or you're going to build a bridge anyway, Maybe it makes sense to do it now, as opposed to next year, two or three years down the road. But, I mean, that, that can only go so far. So it's interesting what, what she talks about in her piece, is that if we're going to focus on infrastructure, let's tie it in with what we're going to need in the short term. If that means we're going to have to overhaul schools or other public places, then let's do that. Right, Retrofitting a, a school to the, to the new health realities is a different kind of, of infrastructure. So maybe to focus on it in that sense and also to recognize that we do need to ensure that you know, people feel comfortable going out again, addressing that demand side. Uh, so that means effective public health uh, measures. That also means uh, effective safety measures when it comes to public places. And so it all it all ties in then. So recognizing what's unique about this situation and, and how best to 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 support Canadians going forward here. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me Rob at seven seventy chqr.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.